All right. There's something about this year, which I don't know about you, but I've started to call 2020 an overtime. Because it doesn't really feel like we've gotten to a new year. It's still just 2020 extended. But there's, there's something about this year that has made the Christmas season uh, advent uh, more significant. In fact, I was meeting with a group of pastors um, last Friday, and every single one of them is doing an Advent series. Every single one, which, you know, that's, that's a normal tool in the, in the church toolbox. It's a normal thing that, that churches do, but it is consistent across the board. And so we also were going to spend the next four weeks um, thinking about the season that we were in in the context of the capital S season, which is as a people who are waiting for Jesus. And that's sometimes very difficult to do because we tend to talk about Jesus in the past tense. And that past tense is essential. Jesus came. Jesus died. Jesus rose. All past tense, essential. But the Advent season is an opportunity to recognize that the work that Jesus began, he has not yet completed. It's a season of longing and anticipation. And so towards that end, we're going to do an Advent series, but it's a little bit different. What we're going to do is look at anticipatory prophetic announcements of coming kids, boys who are about to be born, who will change the world. And we're going to see that they didn't fulfill. They didn't measure up. We're going to look at Noah, at Joseph, and at Solomon. And by the time we're done, we're going to recognize that all the people who put their trust in these amazing things that were said about these three men were still left waiting. And my hope is that as we do so, as we reflect on these almost messiahs, if you will, that it will help us to rejoice in the fact, again, that Jesus has come, but also recognize our need for him to finish what he has started. And so, with that in mind, this morning we're going to begin our series, Not Yet Christmas, and we're going to look this morning uh, at the son of Adam. And to do so, I invite you to turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 5. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, there should be one right in front of you in the back of a pew you are welcome to use. Genesis is the first book in the Old Testament, and chapter 5 shouldn't be too difficult to find. You're all familiar if you've ever tried to read the Bible with Genesis 5 because it's the first time you question your choices. It's a genealogy, right? It's, it's just a list of people who lived and died and had kids who lived and died and so on and so forth. And none of them you know. But it's also woven right into the fabric of what's going on. And, and the truth is, as modern Americans, we're terrible readers. So we don't always get it. We don't always see what's going on. And one of the things we're going to do is, is help connect this passage back into what comes before and what follows. Um, but I want to just give you the, uh, the cadence here to get us started. And so here in chapter 5, I want you to notice uh, verse 5. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. 
Look at verse 8. Thus all the days that Seth were 912 years, and he died. Okay. And then verse 11. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Okay. And we can do this over and over and over again. There is this rhythm to the passage, and it is a rhythm of death. Okay. Now what I want to draw your attention to is where the list ends. The chapter ends with a man named Noah, but right before we get to Noah, we get his father Lamech, and I want you to notice verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now that's, that's different than, than just saying, I'm going to call this one Tom because he looks like my Uncle Tom, right? He says, I'm going to call this one rest or relief because in, in this world we find ourselves in the pain and the toil and the curse and the death, this one is going to bring us relief. It's prophetic. It's, it's not just a hope or a wish. He says, Noah is going to make a difference, right? It's very similar to... Uh, to the angel's announcement to, uh, to Mary and to Joseph that says, call this one Jesus, for he has a destiny, and he will save people from their sins, right? It's that type of a statement. And honestly, I think a lot of us miss this statement, and when we start the story of Noah, we start in chapter 6. But this sets the framework, okay? And so we have this cadence of death, and he died, and he died, and he died, and then we have a potential hope in the midst of all the death, okay? Now, let's go ahead and pray, and then I want to go all the way back to Genesis 3 and trace a longer thread and bring us into chapter 6. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we have a very specific request here, especially those of us who believe in you. We want you to stoke the fires of our desire for your return, that you would cultivate in us a longing for you to finish what you have begun. And we want to practice that, if you will, in our waiting for December 25th and our waiting for Christmas. We want the experience of Anna in the temple who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. We, we want the experience of um, uh, o come, O come, Emmanuel. We, we want to look forward. And we want to do that both to celebrate and rejoice when Christmas has come and recognize that you have come and also to reflect on the fact that you will come again. And so we pray that through your word you would do just that, Lord. Enliven our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now here's the thing. Some of you have Bibles that are filled with cross-references, right? Little pointers to other passages of Scripture. Maybe they're down in the foot, or maybe they're in the center column like mine. Maybe even some of you have a Thomas Chain reference Bible, which means right alongside the text is a mass of verses other places. It's, it's best to recognize that the Bible is, is hyperlinked, extensively so. And if, if the letters were just blue and you could click on them, it would just jump around. And that's, that's not us trying to go, oh, this is the same topic here. That's actually 
baked into the fabric of what the Bible is. It's amazing how often it quotes itself, reference itself, how often the authors of the New Testament say, this is what the prophet Joel talked about. For as Isaiah said, right, it's connected in this way. But that's also true of the books in and of themselves. Just this book of Genesis, there are highlights, connective tissue, reminders that say, hey, this is about that. It's full of them. And this is one of those places because when Lamech speaks up and gives this word about the significance of Noah, he says that he is going to give us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. That word there for painful toil is only used three times in the entire Old Testament, that Hebrew word. The other two are in Genesis chapter 3. Okay. And so what Lamech is saying is not just a generic statement, life is hard, Noah will make a difference. It's what happened in Genesis 3, Noah's going to do something about. I'll show you what I mean. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. So let me get you up to speed. God has created human beings and all of the world that they live in. He's given them a place to reside in the garden, a job to do to cultivate and protect it. And another voice, the voice of the serpent, comes and pitches them a different way of life, a life of independence and disobedience. And where we're picking up here is in the consequence of that as God interrogates them, discovers what they've done, and tells them what his judgment is. And I want you to notice uh, what he says here in verse 15, uh, 16 to the woman. He said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Verse 17, and Adam said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you, and what? In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Okay, now, babies, not new. Babies were the plan already, but now it's babies in pain. Working the ground, not new. They were going to work the ground. They were going to cultivate the garden. They were going to take the boundaries of Eden and ever expand it until the whole world was filled. That was the job, but now it's a toil. Now it's in pain. Okay. And notice also that word curse. We saw that as well in Lamech's announcement. The ground will be cursed. And so the pain comes from the fact, uh, well, I like the word futility, right? From the fact that there's, there's a futility now where things don't always happen as they should, where storms and locusts and things interfere, where life is hard speci specifically because of sin. And notice as he continues here, he says, In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Verse 18, Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of your field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat your bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now that is new. Death is new. And Adam and Eve knew that up front. Do not eat of the tree, for the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay? So what we have now is pain, curse, death, toil, and then we have this pre-existing condition, sin. Okay? And they're all bound together. 
And what you discover as you keep reading in Genesis is this is not an isolated incident without consequence. In fact, you discover that this isn't just a decision that Adam and Eve made that changed their destiny, but one that changed ours. Which is why what happens next? Adam and Eve have babies, presumably in pain, right? They have two children, Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel go about their life until Cain, out of jealousy and frustration of his brother Abel and the fact that God receives his sacrifice, murders his own brother. Okay. The problem's just gotten bigger. God says, you will die because of sin. That's now a part of it. And their son kills his brother. He says to Abel, you will die, and does it with his own hand. And so now we have the introduction of violence, human-on-human destruction. And so notice here, God again speaks, and it's very similar to what happens with Adam and Eve. In the garden, God comes and says, what have you done? And he has this little back and forth, and then he talks about consequence. The same thing happens with Cain. And so the Lord said, uh, verse 10, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You should be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Do you feel the connective tissue between that and what happens to Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden and Cain is kicked even further, right? Adam and Eve, uh, because of them, the ground is cursed and now the ground is no longer accessible at all to Cain, right? Farming is no longer going to be good for him at all. Okay, and look at how Cain responds in verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Now notice what that is. It's a limitation on human violence, right? Cain goes, I'm a killer. Somebody else can be a killer too. And when they hear what I've done, they're going to take my life. And God says, no, I'm going to protect you. Okay. But the story doesn't end with Cain. Cain, because he's protected, goes out, starts a family, sets up a city, has generations and generations. And I want you to notice one of his great-great-grandkids' name is Lamech. And look at what happens in verse um, 23, okay? Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me, okay? Again, there's murder in the bloodline, right? Again, what happened with Cain is not a one-time happenstance, but it seems to be continuing. And Lamech recognizes that himself. And he said, just as Cain has done, so also I. But listen to the attitude here. What does he say? He says, verse 24, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Now, who's missing from Lamech here? God's not present at all. 
And the vengeance that Lamech is talking about is not, but God will protect me. It's, you want to mess with me? I'll do to you just like I did to that young man. Right? It's growing. The problem's getting greater. And so by the time we get to chapter 5, and we read, and he died, and he died, and he died, we're seeing the spread of sin and its consequences gone global. What I'm suggesting to you is, although we talk about Genesis chapter 3 being the fall, it's a free fall. And we don't hit the bottom in chapter 3. Things get worse. And so it's then that we open up chapter 6 and we get God's assessment of where things are at. And I want you to notice what he says in verse 5 of chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. It's gone viral. And then notice how he describes it. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Do you see how our author there lays on the modification language? So it's not just that some thoughts are evil, it's that every thought is evil. Only evil, continuously. Okay. And so we see here that death has gotten worse, because death came through Adam, and therefore death came to, all, came to all men. We see that violence has gotten worse as violence turns into vengeance violence. It turns into blood feuds. We see that sin has gotten worse. Um, and here it gets not just into every person, but deeply rooted in. Okay. In verse 6, and the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. That word grieved is, is surprising for a lot of reasons. But let me add one this morning. It comes from the same root word as that word we've been looking at for pain. And that's powerful. It means God recognizes in his pronouncement because of Adam and Eve's choices that they will now live a life of pain. But now the pain has gotten so great it's gotten into God's heart too. Let's look at another description of how God views the circumstances in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And so, verse 13, God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, one last time, I want you to recognize how many things we've been talking about are woven into that. There's a connection here between blood and soil. Do you see it? Just like there was with Cain. Cain, your brother's blood is crying from the ground because, your brother's, or because the ground received your brother's blood. No longer will the earth, right? And so there is this correlation between environment an occupant. There's this uh, relationship between sin and the curse. And now we see there's a relationship between destruction and destruction. The word here where it says, God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt. And then he says, um, 
I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. And so this, this must be um, later in chapter 8. But God says, therefore I have corrupted the earth. It's the same word in Hebrew. Okay. Now I know we've just laid a bunch of fabric panels on the table. We've yet to make the quilt. Okay. Right now I'm just trying to draw your attention to the fact that the Bible proclaims that there's a problem. That the problem is getting worse. And that it's bound up in these ideas of violence, curse, corruption, and death. Now, with that in mind, I want to go back and read the pronouncement about Noah, chapter 5. Again, look with me at verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, and he called his name Noah, meaning rest, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now here's the question. In what way did Noah bring relief? I'm going to assume this morning that without reading through the next three chapters, you know the general outlines of the story. The world is corrupt and filled with violence, and God is going to destroy it, but Noah and his family find grace in the eyes of the Lord. And God says, Noah, I'm going to send a flood, but before I do, you and your family are to build a boat. You are to fill it with samples of all life, because I am going to flood the earth to the brim, and all outside the boat will be destroyed. As we saw in chapter 6, I'm going to destroy all flesh on the earth. Noah the relief bringer? Not how we usually think of him. Noah the survivor, right? Even if he's a, a, a saved individual, we wouldn't really call him a savior. It's interesting, isn't it? Now, there is a sense where almost darkly the words of Lamech make sense. Read them again and think with me. He says, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And all of humanity at the end of this story is no longer working the soil in pain because they're dead. But, it's worth keeping in mind that the Bible has been discussing all of humanity not as, and we've seen this extensively, not as unique individuals, but as a collective reality, the human race. So maybe we shouldn't think about Noah's contemporaries and we should recognize that something's gone wrong with humanity and if there's going to be a continuation, God needs a fresh start. And again, you want to look for parallels? This is homework. Read Genesis 8 and 9 and ask yourself, in what ways has Noah become just like Adam? Brand new earth in a garden screws the whole thing up. Okay. And that's the problem. Although the earth is cleansed of its corruption and there's kind of a reset on humanity, sin still exists after the garden. And with sin, so does death. 
And we're not told in chapter 5 that Noah dies, but he will. Why? Because Noah got on the boat. Because Noah is saved. And it gets weirder. Because what does God say? He says, when I look at human beings, I see that every intent of the thoughts of their heart is always evil continuously. Therefore, I will bring judgment. Look at what he says post-flood. Turn over to chapter 8. So the water subsides. God calls Noah out of the boat. The first thing Noah does is he builds an altar and offers a sacrifice in gratitude that he's still alive. In verse 21, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. You know what he says there? He says the same thing with a different outcome. First, he says, I'm going to destroy the ground because of the evil intentions of man's heart. And here he says, I'm never going to do it again because of the evil intentions of man's heart. Isn't that weird? And you can say, is that just because Noah offered a sacrifice? No. No, it's because this is the plan. Noah is the plan, but it's only a phase in the plan. It's because Noah is at best a shadow of what needs to happen. In other words, I would suggest to you that Jesus is the true and greater Noah. And, and, and that he will give us relief from the curse of Lamech. There's hints of it in Noah's life. There's, there's some evidences of it. At, at the very least, humanity continues and with it the work of God. But if we need consolation, we must look elsewhere. See, the problem is, if God is going to rid the world of evil, how can he do so without ridding the world of us? That's the tension of the story of Noah. Now, there are some Jewish commentators who have wrestled with this before me, reading this same book year after year, generation after generation, and saying, in what way does Noah bring consolation? And this is one of the suggestions. The first thing we see Noah doing after he builds this altar and after God makes this covenant and says, I'm never going to flood the earth again, the first thing we see him doing is planting a vineyard. In fact, he's a successful gardener of a vineyard, and so behold, he has wine. And we find him drunk in his tent. And so some commentators say, there it is. There's the consolation. Noah invented wine. (laughs) And I just think that's miserable. And here's why. Because although wine is associated with joy, in the same way I would say Noah is associated with Jesus, it's just a shadow of the greater, bigger, deeper reality of joy. It's, It's a sign not the thing that signifies. But in its primary use, we use it as a form of self-medication. Why? Because life is hard. We take the pain and the toil and the death 
and the curse, and we inebriate ourselves against it. That's not consolation. That's at best a consolation prize. Forgive me for quoting modern theologians of our popular culture, but you may remember the song a few years ago that asked this profound question, turn down for what? And if you're not familiar with the expression, it means, why be sober? There's truth there. There's reality there. Even the author of Ecclesiastes, who tries to understand the world as separate from the reality of God, under the sun, what is his final conclusion? This is my final conclusion. Enjoy your life where you can find it. And that's as far as he can get. But when we get to the New Testament, things have changed. In fact, Paul asks this question in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ is not risen and the dead do not raise, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the gospel of Noah. It's the consolation prize gospel. The tension that the Bible presents is that tension I mentioned earlier that God is diametrically opposed to evil because he is good, because he he is love, because he is just. But he also loves us, his creation. And so how can he destroy evil, rid the world of evil without ridding the world of us? That is the tension. And it is incredible that when we get to Jesus, we find something different than Noah. Because in the story of the flood, we see that God responds to destruction with destruction. And I want to reiterate again, that's good. It's right for him to do so. It's justice. It's preventative. And we see that he responds to sin with judgment. And we see here that the way that he goes about dealing with the curse is by stopping the things that bring curse. But the way that he goes about doing things here is to cover the earth with water as far as the curse is found. Now contrast that with Jesus. Here Jesus comes in human flesh and unlike Noah is sinless, always doing the things that please the Father, living out a perfect life of love and shalom, completely, utterly innocent, untainted by sin. And there in Jesus Christ, instead of there being a boat, there's a cross. And instead of God's response to the destructive nature of man, by destroying mankind, we see that Jesus absorbs that in himself. As Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin. And the curse is present in the cross as well. As a crown of thorns is woven 
by some awful soldiers and crammed down on Jesus' head. That's the crown of the king of the universe, of God in the flesh. It's a crown of curse. And Paul points on this too, and he says that Christ bore the curse for us. And death? Jesus enters in and takes that too. That's why the gospel brings true consolation and true hope. Because it deals with the issue that Noah couldn't deal with. It deals with the issue that can't be solved with a global bath. As I said, with Noah, God deals with the curse by covering the earth with water as far as the curse is found. But that, that verse that's unfamiliar to us, that was unfamiliar to Andy this morning, from Joy to the World, listen to what it says. And I want you again to hear it in the language of Genesis, hear it in the language of the promise of Lamech. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. That's the gospel message. It's not just a private salvation or a ticket to heaven. It's a reversal, a restoration of God's intentions to the world as it should be, and it all flows through Jesus, not Noah. Because in Noah, at best, we get a fresh start. At Noah, at best, we get a clean earth. But what God does in Jesus Christ is to make available the blessings of Jesus. As far as the curse is found. But at the same time, it's not hard to read Genesis 6. Every intentional of the heart of man was always evil continuously. The earth was filled with corruption and violence. And have it feel incredibly contemporary. Just one 24-hour period last week in the city of Seattle, there were six shootings, one of them at Garfield High School. In fact, gun violence is on a massive rise, and we've had more what we classify as mass shootings this year than any year since 1999. I could do the same thing with corruption, couldn't I? And I can definitely do the same thing with death. See, this is the thing. God has provided everything we need to set the world right in Jesus Christ. And he will do. But we live in a world of tension. We live in a world of waiting. We live in a world of longing. We say, like those in the book of Revelation, how long, O Lord? The ancient church used to say, Maranatha, come, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. And the reason is because the new heavens and the new earth that we get in Noah, 
is just the old heavens and the old earth. And the problem persists. That the new heavens and the new earth that we get in Christ is fully, completely renewed. A world without sin or curse or death. It's not just a resetting of the clock, it's a restoration of all things. And so as we move towards Christmas, take the contradiction of our times, all the beautiful lights and the joy and the cookies and the fudge alongside whatever hits the front page of the paper, alongside the reality of things like massive earthquakes or floods or tsunamis, alongside the, the tensions and the longings and the pain in our bones and the pain in our heart, and look for the consolation of Israel in Jesus Christ, who did what Noah couldn't do by doing what Noah never did, taking all of that judgment, all of that pain, all of that death, all of that sin in himself, God's response to violence is violence. And again, that is his justice. But what's unique in Jesus Christ is that response is a receiving of that violence and not a meeting out of it, an absorbing of the evil of the world so that when Jesus dies, it dies with him. And when he raises again, we can raise unto life. Let's pray. Lord, definitively, we've discovered this morning joy to the world. Not just the joy found in small measure in the, in the margins and in the shadows of our world. Glimpses of the fact that God is still good, even though the world has gone wrong. But the joy of triumph, the joy of restoration, the joy of consolation, the joy of Jesus Christ that what has gone wrong in Adam has gone right in Christ. And Jesus, we look to you this morning as the true son of Adam, the one who was promised right in the midst of the judgment of Genesis 3, the one whose heel would be bit by the serpent, but simultaneously that act would crush the serpent's head, the one who would taste death for all man, so that we might know life. And Lord, the way that we respond is variant. We rejoice and we wait for the fulfillment and we reflect what is coming by being a blessing in the midst of this fallen world. And we pray that you would come. It's 20 days till Christmas. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to take that same anticipation, scratching days off the calendar, all of the excitement of the fulfillment of Christmas morning, and you would help us use it to long for your coming, to long for your presence, to long for the one who, better than Noah, didn't build a boat but climbed upon a cross 
and died for our sins and bore the curse and experienced death so that we might be brought back into the presence of God so that what's gone wrong in our hearts may be set right, so that our world could be cleansed and filled with a people who know and love God, who are forgiven of their sins and no longer sinners. We just thank you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship together.